We're jumping back into our sermon series on the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And since I was not with you last week, here's a brief refresher of what we have seen. Isaiah is a prophet to God's people speaking God's word to the southern kingdom of Judah in the late 700s B.C. He is calling them to repent because they've rebelled against God. The problem, though, is they don't seem to think they really need to repent. That to them, they appear devout and successful. But Isaiah says, no. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he said, here is who you are supposed to be, the ideal vision of God's people. But it is hard to think you need to be this ideal vision of God's people when you look in the mirror and think, we're pretty great. And so Isaiah here is in chapter 2, trying to show them, you're not all that great. You may think you are, but be warned, you are not that great. So if you would, open up your Bibles, if you're not already there, to the prophet Isaiah on page 674 in the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 2, verses 6 through 22. Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east, and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, for the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats. 
to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, we pray that through the hearing of the word that you would bless us, that you, O oh God, would speak through your word and give us open hearts and minds, that your word is truth. And so often, Lord, we are deluded and deceived by lies, often of our own creation, and so speak truth to us today and use me, O oh Lord, to do so not because I have found the truth myself, but because you, O Lord, reveal it in your word, and not because I am any better, for I am a sinner. But use me by the power of your Holy Spirit to proclaim your word and give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. In Isaiah chapter 2, we see very clearly that things are not great. It's another abrupt transition from this time very good things to very bad things. And so Isaiah says, here's the problem, guys. And then he tries to give them the proper perspective to show them the problem before giving them the posture in which to work against this problem. And the problem Isaiah identifies is an odd one. It is the problem of success. The problem of success that things seemed to be going great in Judah, at least according to the measurable categories of the world. We saw that in our Old Testament reading from 2 Chronicles 26, that Uzziah's reign as king of Judah was 50-some years. And he did lots of good stuff, lots of things. And Isaiah's ministry began at the end of the reign of Uzziah. It was a prosperous time, but Uzziah let that prosperity go to his head, and his problem was pride, a problem that God judged him for by giving him leprosy when he entered the temple thinking, I mean, I've done all this other good stuff. I might as well do the temple stuff too because I am awesome, and God gave him leprosy for thinking such a thing. He may not have used those exact words. We're just inside his head right now. And we discover in Isaiah chapter 2 that as the king goes, so go the people. That the people of Judah had a pride problem as well. And we see the roots of their pride in verses 6 through 9. We hear Isaiah repeatedly say that the people are full of stuff. They are full of the diversity of international cultures full of heaps of material wealth, full of their stores of military strength, full of a buffet of religious options and idols. If you would give that to most of the societies in the history of our world, they would say, that sounds awesome. That sounds like success. That's what we want to do. We want what they had. Isaiah, though, thinks they're just full of it. They're not full of anything good. He didn't see this fullness as something to be proud of because Judah was supposed to be a different kind of people. 
This passage immediately follows chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, where he is saying, here is the ideal. Here is who God made you to be. And here is who you are. And you're proud of it. You love that you're like this instead of like this. You can go through and see exactly how they are failing. One commentator takes us through these things, that the world is supposed to be drawn to Jerusalem, but Judah is conforming to the ways of the world. The world is supposed to seek spiritual benefit from God's people, but God's people are busy counting their coins with material things. Coming to Jerusalem is supposed to bring world peace, and yet when you show up in Jerusalem, all you can see are the weapons of war on their thick walls. The world is supposed to look at God's people and know God. And God's people are busy making their own idols. God's people were building up themselves in their own image of who they wanted to be instead of being God's people, serving Him and blessing the other nations. All because of success. That pride is a very dangerous sin because it often comes about when things are good, when we are successful and accomplishing things. But pride is a problem because it leads us to focus on ourselves, to look primarily at what we have done and how great we were in doing those things. And while we're busy admiring ourselves in the mirror, we start to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, thinking we're more impressive than we really are. But as we're busy looking in the mirror at our own successes, looking at the trophies on our wall and the status of our resume, it's a lot easier to look down on others when they don't seem as impressive as we think we are. And so instead of being God's people serving others around us, we start to look at others around us and say, why aren't you serving me? Eventually turning ourselves into little gods because of our pride. And so what Isaiah shows us is that pride needs to be put in its proper perspective. That we need to see ourselves at the proper scale. It reminds me of when a group of children are playing together with no adult or parent around, okay? One child will typically stand out among the rest, perhaps because they're older or bigger, maybe they're more outgoing or more daring, and they kind of command the group. It's like, wow, that kid. And then in walks an adult, preferably a parent, and all of a sudden the allure of the, the kid dissolves when you see real power, when you see someone who is way bigger and way more impressive than that person. That kind of proper perspective is what Isaiah is trying to show us in verses 10 through 11. And he says to these proud men and women of Judah, enter into the rock Hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. 
instead of an older child deferring to the parent, what we have here is human beings seeing how puny they are before Almighty God and taking the only recourse they have, which is to hide in the caves in the dust, hoping we won't get squashed like ants. But God is not coming to squash us for our smallness. He doesn't hate small things. God's specific problem is humanity's pride. When we feel that we are successful and accomplished and we don't see ourselves as puny in comparison to him anymore, we see ourselves as greater than we actually are. And that's what Isaiah is warning against, that those who elevate themselves with pride will be brought low. And he tells us why. Because God alone will be exalted. God's the one who created the heavens and the earth. He has given each of us life and breath and everything that we have. Without him, we can do nothing. Our successes and accomplishments are inherently contingent on him and his grace for them to happen. And so much of what we accomplish depends on things outside of our control so that our successes are not wholly our own. For example, think of the Titanic, the ship, not the movie on which the ship, or the, yeah, the, the ship, not the movie. The movie's another story. We know how it ends. In this passage, we talk about ships from Tarshish and how they will be brought to nothing. It's amazing how beautiful and impressive ships look and how quick they can go down. In the Titanic, the pride of the builders said, we have made an unsinkable ship of luxury and technology that can make vast voyages. And yet, something outside of their control An iceberg brings it all down, and pride goes with it. Or consider the adventurers who climb Mount Everest. They want to scale the tallest of mountains to literally be on top of the world. But if the wind is blowing too hard and the weather changes, they got no shot. They can only do it in the right conditions, conditions which are out of their control. And so, in a sense, it's not up to them whether they make it to the top or not. Or consider athletes who compete to win championships. They did it. But how many other things had to fall into place? There were injuries on the other team. The ball bounced this way or that way. The refs called a penalty on this play, but not that play. Our successes and accomplishments can seem impressive, seem like things we did, but they are not entirely our own doing. We are dependent on factors outside of our own control. And that seems to be what Isaiah is saying here in the last verse that hits hard. Verse 22, where he says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? As doctors and nurses will probably tell you, we are just flesh and bone. We are meat. And yes, we have air inside of us that helps us survive. And we need that air. Every moment of every day, even while we are sleeping, our body is constantly in need of something outside of ourselves in order to survive. We need air. 
What have we done to acquire that? To earn that? Nothing. It is a gift of God the Creator to provide it for us. If we are so dependent on something so basic for our very lives, then why do we think so highly of ourselves when we are successful? Why do we get haughty and proud with our accomplishments? Now, I want to be clear. I'm not suggesting that pride is such a dangerous thing that we should strive to be unsuccessful and to achieve nothing in life, okay? I'd be a really good commencement speaker if I told you that. There is a difference between success and pride, between accomplishing things and having a lofty view of ourselves. And the key is how we think about our successes and accomplishments. Where are our eyes fixed? Do we look in the mirror after we've accomplished things and say, yeah, I'm kind of a big deal? Or do we fix our eyes on God who has given us life, breath, and all of the gifts that made our successes possible? Where do those eyes look in good times? For Uzziah, he was strong as long as he sought the Lord until he stopped seeking the Lord. When he stopped seeking the Lord, he fell. The one who was lifted high was brought low by God. And so our eyes in times of success and in times when we've accomplished many things should be on God. We exalt him. Now I'd like to throw out an interesting question I've gotten a number of times in the past. And it deals with this idea of we need to exalt or glorify God. That isn't it selfish for God to want to be exalted and glorified? Isn't it selfish that he alone is allowed to be glorified? People often ask that question because when fellow men and women want to be exalted and glorified, we think they have a fragile ego. They just need the praise of others. Maybe they're megalomaniacs or narcissists or something like that. So why is it morally acceptable for God to demand this kind of exaltation and glorification, and yet it is sinful for us to do it? It's a good question. Well, for one, God is actually worthy of that exaltation because he is not dependent upon anything for his accomplishments and his glory. In and of himself, he is all-glorious, all-powerful, all-wise, perfectly good. There is no evil in him. He is eternally existent, not owing his life to any other force. He always has been. And he created the heavens and the earth. He didn't go down to the next store and buy the heavens and the earth from another God. He made them out of nothing. And so God is actually deserving of our praise because he is the ultimate good and the highest power. He has not only made us, but the air we breathe, the earth we inhabit, the food we eat, and the raw materials by which we make anything else. And so he is worthy of our glory and praise. But that's not the only reason. God does not simply say, glorify me, glorify me, serve me, serve me. He showed that he could serve as well. And so instead of regarding man, let us regard the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, 
as Paul describes him in our New Testament reading from Philippians 2. That God the Son left his glory in heaven, emptying himself and taking on human flesh to live as a servant. Jesus humbled himself to obey his parents as a young person. To humbly work day by day at a trade as he was growing up in life. And to care for the sick and the poor around him. And though he was God in the flesh, he did not have a lofty view of himself. And his greatest accomplishment was his greatest moment of humility, suffering and dying on the cross in our place. And God made sure that we would fix our eyes on him. We would regard him when he raised him from the dead. That though Jesus was brought low, even to the point of death, he was exalted above all others. And that sets the pattern for us. That so often we seek to accomplish things and be glorified. God shows us, and through the life of Jesus, we are shown that exaltation comes from willing humility. From willing humility. And so as individuals, we are called to look at our greatest accomplishments with humility. Saying, God, forgive me for the pride I have taken in these things because they were gifts from you. We are called to look at our self-image as good moral people and reject it because we know there is pride in there. We are called to look at those things in our lives by which we have taken the greatest pride, perhaps our jobs, our children, our marriage, our legacy, our reputation, our good works. We are to confess that none of these good things that we have done did we do on our own. We needed God for all of them. Yes, we may have accomplished much. Yes, we may appear successful, but we must not let it grow into pride. And instead, we humble ourselves before God, confessing that we are sinners. Isaiah, very worrisome here, says, do not forgive them. Anytime you read that in the Bible, you should get afraid. And yet, we hear from the rest of Scripture that there is forgiveness available in Christ. Our assurance of pardon tells us if we deceive ourselves and say, if we say we are without sin, we deceive ourselves. There is no forgiveness for those who say they are without sin. But if we humbly confess, yes, God, I have sinned. I have done much and I have taken too much pride in it. They are all from you. Forgive me. Then there is forgiveness in Christ. That only by willingly humbling ourselves and looking to Jesus and regarding and trusting the Son of Man can we then find the exaltation that comes in Christ. For we are not simply humbled and God keeps us down there, but we are promised to rise again with Christ in glory with him. But only when we as individuals do that. And as a group of us individuals humble ourselves and trust in Christ and we seek to live together, can the church begin to fulfill this vision that Isaiah had of who God's people were supposed to be. In that vision, God's people do accomplish much. They are well thought of by the world, but guess what? They hardly even notice because their eyes are fixed on the God they serve. And only when our eyes are not on our own accomplishments or jealously on the accomplishments of others, only when our eyes are on Christ can we live together in a godly community 
serving one another, and sharing the good news that God does indeed save sinners. So as a church, let us stop regarding ourselves, looking at the great things that we have done. Instead, let us together regard Jesus, whom we strive to serve. Let us have others look at us and not say, look at all the great things they have done, but look at who they are doing them for. For it is his name that is above every name, and he alone is worthy of our glory and praise. And so let us serve the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Oh God, we pray that you would kill the pride within us, that you would help us to see ourselves as sinners wholly dependent upon your grace. Help us to not simply do that as individuals, but collectively as your church, so that we can live as your people are called to live, so that we can live for you. And I pray, O oh Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, that you would strengthen us for that, reminding us that we needed Christ to die for us, for we are all sinners, and we need his continuing grace to sustain us, to live as your people. So, Lord, help us in that regard. In Jesus' name, amen.